Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, my name is Josh Hug, and I'm a co-founder of Remitly. And Remitly sends money from over 17 countries to over 100 destination countries around the world. Welcome to Inspiring Leadership, and I'll now turn it over to Jonathan. Well, Josh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the series. And we had your other co-founder, Matt, and uh, he was very well received. And I know people will find it fascinating to hear uh, the story about Remitly Global and how you started 10 years ago, just three of you. And I'd love to hear that story later on. And now you are NASDAQ listed, you're a public company, you've been a unicorn and you have about 1,800 people working for you. I really love working with your company. And uh, it's, it's one of the greatest pleasures that we have because of the culture that you've set up, which we can talk about during this series, but also it's a mission-driven company doing an amazing job to help immigrants send money back to their loved ones. And, and, and you don't often find a company that mixes almost like the calling of a charity with a commercial, a commercial cause as well. So congratulations on that, Josh. Josh, tell us what you're doing at the moment as the co-founder, you and, and Matt and, and all the things that are busy when you're a public company. Yeah, I mean, my, my role has changed a tremendous amount um, as the company has continued to evolve and grow, as, as everyone uh, within Remitly has um, had to change and grow and adapt, which is part of what makes it fun. Um, in the early days, I uh, led the product and engineering um, uh, efforts, and then Matt did the business functions. Um, as we grew, we've hired people to take over some of the core product and engineering capabilities, and I'm really excited about the team we've built out there. And I've, my role now is really focused on primarily innovation, like what are the new products that we're building um, and how are we going to create new products that will continue to expand the surface of uh, value that we can create for customers. Fantastic. And, and in, in all the things you've been doing, it, it goes back to you couldn't have done this in 10 years unless you'd had an amazing grounding and a buildup. I mean, you're currently a mentor for Techstars. You were the CEO of Shelfari, um, which was, uh, as I understand it, uh, uh, sort of for book lovers. And Amazon saw what a good product it was, and they acquired you. Uh, and then you worked for Amazon. You were at Real Networks, a director of devices, and you began life out as a software engineer. That's, that's quite a journey. Um, when, when you look back even further in your life before you began that, Josh, you know, how is your upbringing and, and who influenced you to make you the successful entrepreneur and co-founder of such a huge business now? What, what was it in early life that, that shaped you? So, I, I mean, I, have, I think I have a relatively unique upbringing. I, I grew up in rural Oregon um, in the northeast of, of the United States, um, but a, a small town of uh, 12,000 people, which was actually removed there from, a, from an even smaller, I'd say, village um, when, from, when I was eight. Um, I decided that I was going to build software when I was seven wow. or 10. I said, I, when I was 10, I moved, moved to, the, to the big city uh, when, I was, when I was 10. 
I went on a seven and then I decided I was going to build software when I was, when I was 10. And I, I've, I've been a kind of on a journey ever since then. I, I actually know that it was interestingly, even though I was certain I was going to do that, I decided I was going to go to a liberal arts college um, instead of a technical university. And I did that primarily because I really wanted to learn how to connect with people because I felt like I could learn how to, I, I could learn how to build software, but I, I, I wanted to actually create, learn how to create stronger relationships. And so I actually went to Whitworth University in Spokane, Washington uh, for my undergrad. Um, I learned a ton there. I'm really grateful for my experience there. And so I have some of my best friends to this, to, to this day come from my experience um, at that university. Um, and I'm actually now on the board of trustees, um, which is which is fun to be able to give back to that university, given how much of an impact they had on, on my life. Um, but if I if I so if I look at my my journey though, I, I actually did an internship out of high school. I did I did multiple internships during university, um, and culminating in my senior year of university, where I actually took six months off, and I took I did I did. Uh, a six-month internship with Real Networks was where I started my career, and this was in '99. This was the this was the dot-com boom. This is when everyone uh, I was was getting getting uh, very wealthy on the stocks of the companies that, that they were working for. And here I was, this intern, like just somewhat overwhelmed, but just worked really, really hard uh, to to learn how to actually build world-class software. Mm. Oh, it's it's a hell of a story. What about? What about your parents or any teachers? Were there any role models to you? I mean, it's lovely that, and, and this is quite important that people have a sense of focus that you wanted to write software at age 10. And also um, with my son-in-law, who is a software engineer, I'm aware that they, he and his colleagues, EQ isn't a big thing for them. So the fact that early on you realized that you needed to have both the IQ and the EQ, and no doubt people um, really are impressed by your, your, your horsepower as an intellectual horsepower to know that you need to develop that side is important. But, but what, what about your parents? What kind of influence did they have? What kind of values did they have that you've kept hold of? Yeah. I mean, they had tremendous influence on me. Um, my, my, both of my grandparents were ranchers, um, and, and, and farmers, um, in, in rural Oregon. And my dad actually, for the first like eight years of my life, uh, worked on the farm with his dad, uh, and built out, built up a bunch of, uh, uh, both cattle and land that he was farming in, in conjunction partnership with his dad. Um, but then he decided to leave farming and moved, uh, to, uh, La Grande, Oregon, which is where, which was where I grew up, which is a small town of 20,000, 12,000 people in a County of 20. Um, and he, uh, and he started a church. And so I, I actually, I saw him start, start a church and, uh, was always a pastor of a, a church that he started and he did computer consulting on the side. And so that's where I kind of got the, a little bit of inspiration. I had two uncles, one co-founded a software company in, um, Portland area. And the other was a software engineer in the Seattle area that were pretty inspirational to me in, in seeing that as a path um, that would be a, an interesting path. Cause I, I knew I didn't want to stay in the rural Oregon at a pretty young age. I, I worked on the farm growing up. Um, I learned a lot of what it means to actually work very, very hard um, physically. And I think that was uh I don't think I, I didn't run away from that, but I knew that I, I, I could probably do more um, than, than do manual labor. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 rule, the law of the farm is a really important one to understand that you can't plant it all now and expect it's going to happen, or you can't milk all the cows for a month and then think you're going to have enough. You, 
you've got to give things time. And I suppose in some ways, that's some of the, the rules and the laws that you're going to have to apply to Remitly Global. As you, as you, you know, you've started out as a public company, you'd, you'd want everything to be doing incredibly well. But sometimes it takes, you know, a few years and patience is required, don't you think? Totally. Yeah. I mean, you, you take, take, take orchards and things that it takes even multiple years for you to see the actual payoff um, some, for some of the things. And, I, and that's what I remember my dad teaching me and learning via, via observation about we never lived month to month, even as he moved into his new um, role. It was always and he, and he would say, like, as a farmer, you have to think annually, you have to think longer term relating to um, the cash flows and the, and the things that, that, that make the business work. And so that was natural. The other thing that was natural was the sense that you can do whatever you need to do to, to like a self sense of independence and, and lack of dependence. Um, I remember working with my granddad to repair uh, tractors and instruments. They would weld things together and fix things uh, because it had to get fixed in order to get the job done. And you didn't really, ha- wouldn't have the money or didn't, and didn't have the time to have it to go for another route. And so you had to do it yourself. You had to do a lot of things yourself. And I think especially in entrepreneurship, you've got to recognize that there's a lot of value in um, generalists, being a generalist and being able to, to, uh, to figure out what needs to be done versus trying to always find a specialist to do a role. Yeah, and, and, and that takes me on nicely to how did you and Matt and your colleague start up remotely? You know, what, why did you suddenly think, hey, we're going to do this? And did you ever imagine 10 years ago it would be as successful as it is now and as well regarded around the world with great potential to grow even more? Yeah, I mean it's 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 a fun story because I I was working at, at Amazon, having sold my first company to Amazon, and I stayed. I was I wanted I knew I wanted to do another entrepreneurial, uh, cr- create another company. I knew I wasn't going to stay at Amazon for the long term. I learned a ton at Amazon. I had a huge amount of respect for some of the things that I learned there, but I knew I was going to do something new and different at some point. I had planned to take some time off to, to end my time at Amazon at, at some point in the future and take some time off and then figure out what I was going to do. But what I was doing as well while I was at Amazon was staying very connected to the entrepreneurial ecosystem within the Seattle area via Techstars. And I was uh, mentoring small companies primarily because it was something that I, I, I just, I, I valued the people that I had gotten advice from when I was starting my first company so much. And that was the reason that I was successful enough to be able to sell a business to Amazon. And it was hard for me to find that mentorship and advice. And so I wanted to make it, and I, I really loved the model of, of the tech stores organization to, to, to make it easier for, for companies to come and get advice instead of just asking for funding and money. Um, and so I was really investing a lot in giving advice to small companies that were starting. And that's when I met Matt. Um, and it's a little bit of a fun story because I was very involved the year that Matt, I've been less involved um, since we've been building remotely. I really has taken a little more time uh, than I had then I, then I, so I don't have as much time that I want to. I want to get back to mentoring small companies again with more, spend more of my time over, over, over the, the long term. Um, but uh, I met Matt and I just started mentoring him and I just felt this connection with him because most of what we talked about was not business strategy, but culture. Like I was very open with him about what I felt like were mistakes that I had made in my first company. Um, and what I, we always, we really bonded over the idea of creating a high performing culture 
that we actually want, that we think is a good culture, that we think is something that we can be proud of. Um, because I think that a lot of cultures err on the side of being too nice and then they're, they're and then low performing, or on the other side, um, they could just be cutthroat and just not fun. Um, and so how do you, how do you actually make a, a good culture that actually is high performing? And that's something that really connected the two of us together. Um, and we obviously, I complimented his skill sets very well because I came from a software background and he came from a more banking background and, uh, we've had a, we haven't had a very complimentary skill set ever since. Mm. And that is, that, that is something, the partnership between the two, the, the yin and yang of you and Matt Oppenheimer is often respected by everybody from your board to, to your colleagues. They go, you each bring something the other didn't have and doesn't have, even in personality types and things like that. And as we looked at some of the psychometrics, it's, it's so interesting to see how, how very different you are, but yet you get on so well and you trust each other implicitly and can have very courageous conversations with each other without it breaking down into shouting, screaming matches like it does in some other companies that I work with, that, that you, you have deep respect. And, and that's why I'm sure you've been successful. Um, thinking about success, what's been one of your proudest moments in your life, Josh? Uh, and and what did you learn from that? And also then, would you share what's been one of the darkest moments, uh, most difficult moments of your life, personally or work-wise, and what you learned from that? What about the proudest, happiest moment first? The proudest moment um, has to be convincing my wife to marry me. <laughs> um, I, it's, a, it's a very unique story that shows... Uh, um, I, the risk, I guess, was a little bit of my nature. I, I met her on a bus ride in Argentina, wow. um, and we were married five months later. Um, wow! And, and so she she was on she had been in in, in Buenos Aires getting a visa to come to the U.S. Uh, to work in a ski area. Um, we got to know each other via Skype and email at the time. And then I, I got a season pass at the ski area she was working at. And it, it ended up being a relatively very compressed saying, but I, but I, I just was like, that, that is, I think I, my, I have four kids now with my wife. Four kids. Um, four kids. Great, I've got four yes. kids. That's a, that's a lot. I yes. know. <laughs> creates a full life, a very full life. Um, and, and so, yeah, when I, when I founded, co-founded uh, Remitly, I had just had my second uh, child. Um, and so I've had two since, since we've done re re remitly. Um, and, it, and so, yeah, it's, it's been, a, life is very full, but that has to be the proudest moment. I, and I, yeah. and I, I quit, I quit my job my, at Real Networks the day that we got married. Wow. Um, which is a pretty big step. And it's, I think it also reflects the partner she's been for me. Um, cause she didn't, she's always like, she's always known me as an entrepreneur and has always been incredibly supportive of, I, I've never felt any of the pressure relating to risk that I think a lot of, I mean, I, I've so many for over two years of our marriage, we didn't have an income salary. Um, and she was never worried. She was never stressed about it. Um, she always trusted that things were going to be fine. Um, and that, that partnership has created a huge amount of uh, empowerment for me to do what I've been able to do. Yeah. What's your wife's first name? Uh, Celeste. Celeste, yeah, amazing. I, 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 and I've always sensed that with you, deep respect for her, and also massive support that you have in return, that you, you couldn't do the stuff you do and be a father of four unless she was really there when you are committing as much as you do. When, when you're a founder of a business that then goes public, it, it, is, it does take so much life energy, doesn't it? I mean, don't you think? It does, yeah. 
it, it, it really does. Yeah. And then, and it's, and it's a challenge to maintain and I, I'm de- by no means perfect, but it's a challenge to maintain that relationship when it feels like I'd have to give so much um, when I'm in my work, but yet I do have a wife who's understanding and it's, and, and, and we're continuing to work on how can I connect um, and disconnect from work and connect to the family. Um, it's hard. It's, it's, it's not easy. Yeah. And that's very honest of you to be like a lot of people try and make it look, it's all gushing and wonderful, but it's not when you're giving so much of your time and the hours you work. And then of course you try so hard at work and with, you know, shareholders and people like that. And then when you come home, people often drop their guard and they get grumpy at home because they don't think they have to try with the, you know, to develop the emotional terms, the connection with people as much because it's just family, but actually it matters even more. You always have to, leave all that junk behind. And that was fine when you had work, but, but, you know, I've seen you, we've been on video calls, you and I, and the family are in the background just through, you know, the glass doors mm-hmm. and you're going to walk out and be with them or they'll come poddling in and, and, and want to have a chat to daddy while he's on a call or whatever it might be. And it's quite hard when there's no easy boundary between them because it becomes boundaryless and then work takes over everything. It just work expands to fill your whole life. Don't you think? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we've, we have even our coaching that we've done and the, the, all the coaching I've had throughout my career, it's actually more acute personally than it is it, uh, like the, the, the lessons that I'm learning relating to my weaknesses as a manager are actually more acute and obvious um, in, 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 at home. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that as I grow, I have to realize that I'm needing to apply the emotional intelligence and things that I'm learning as much to my family as to my work. And in many ways, it's actually, if I can, if I can do it well with my family, then it actually is harder. That's actually harder in, in many ways because of the fact that you, you feel that release, you feel that sense of, I can, I can actually be myself, which isn't often, sometimes being myself isn't that pretty. Um, and, and I need to learn how to be a better person so that I can actually be myself. Cause I can't, I can't just suppress who, 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 who's a bad person and act like I'm a good person. I've got to actually grow such that I can actually be a whole person that I can, I can uh, not have to ha- lever- use emotional energy to change who I am. Cause it just breaks. It, I personally, it completely breaks. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And, and that reminds me of a t-shirt I had of a, a gym I was part of and, and its motto was be yourself only better. And I think there's this, if you're always prepared to admit that you don't know it all and you're work in progress, a bit like your products that you're working on, you're always work in progress and that you're prepared to learn and never be so arrogant to think that you're the final product. I think that's very healthy. And, and what about the darkest moment or one of the, because I'm sure you have many, um, I, I certainly do, but what about the darkest moment in your life, Josh? And what did you learn from that? So I'd say that the darkest moment in my life was, I think after I sold my first company and was at Amazon, it was, it was, it was challenging for me, um, especially emotionally, because I, I had a, I, on many levels, my first company, it was not a, it was not a failure. Um, it, we, we sold it to, to Amazon. It was a good return for all the investors that invested really good jobs for everybody um, that had, had joined it. Um, and especially given how much Amazon's, uh, has, has grown a, a few of the people stayed at Amazon have been very, very successful. Um, many other people moved on to other opportunities, but I felt, I really did feel like a failure 
like I felt like I had failed within my first company. And it, and it, it was, it was a struggle for me specifically because I, I, I remember when I made the decision to sell it and it was the right business decision at the time. It was the rationalization as, to, as it relates to why, why it was the right business strategy for me to, to join what we had done with Amazon, the largest bookseller, social site for people that love books. And if I, if I learned a lot relating to markets and how that was the, the most of the value was being created in retail. So I needed to move towards retail uh, as, as a way to create to, from a market um, positioning point of view it was the right partnership to go deep with. But beyond the business strategy, emotionally, I didn't like the culture that I'd created in my first company. Like I, I thought I, I, and it was, I saw the too much of a reflection of me. Um, I, and I, and I, and I, and especially towards the end, all I saw was the negative aspects of me. Um, there was definitely some positives that were, that represented my strengths in the context of our ability to actually sell it. And we had a really good team that we'd created, but it was too combative. It was too, the, the culture that we had created was, um, not empowering to people. Um, and I, I saw, I saw my weaknesses really magnified. Um, as a leader um, there, and so, and I and I didn't feel like it was sustainable, and so yeah. I, I felt like I needed to. I actually needed to reset the culture, which is part of the reason that we we sold to Amazon. Was I I and and then after selling, learned a ton at Amazon relating to how they had sold scale culture, but it was really hard because I didn't really like my job. Like I I, I learned I I respected the company, but I, I was kind of miserable. Um, and especially from a, from a combination of like personal and, and, and I, and I, at the time I was really thinking I needed to take time off, um, and, and, and quit Amazon. And that's when I actually, around the time when I met Matt and I realized, um, that I actually needed to jump into something and do something that was healthier and better. And so instead of stepping back and taking some time off, which I don't actually think would have been healthy for me at the time, um, I jumped in uh, with a partnership that was the what I was looking for. I knew I wanted to partner with a strong CEO that complemented my 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 weaknesses, um, and that and I when I found Matt and he asked me to join me, which was unsu- which was surprising. I was not looking for it. I wasn't mentoring him to try to find a partner to go and co-found a company with. I was just mentoring because I wanted to give back. When he asked me to join him, um, it was just like a perfect fit for what I was looking for. And so why, and it was such a blessing for me to be able to jump into that, leaving a situation where I had learned a ton of things, but I really felt like I had failed mm-hmm. and I needed to, I needed that. And Matt's been a tremendous uh, partner to me to help like move forward. Like let's, yeah. let's, let's learn from those mistakes that we've made in the past and let's build a great culture. And I look around at what we've done here at Mitley and I'm, I'm pretty proud of some of the things that we've created that I think are going to really be this, this, the long-term magic that's going to cause us to continue to really impact the world around us. Yeah, I must say, of all the companies over the last 25 years that I've worked with, uh, either in, whether it be PwC or IBM or, or Penner, uh, when I was a managing director, uh, and then the others that I've, I've coached in and... I really love the culture that you got more than any others. And, and you all work so very hard to make sure your rhetoric matches how you're behaving. Cause it's, they're always like, it's an example, example, example. And when you don't, when you come short, you admit it with each other, you apologize and you, 
aim to get better at it. And that's why it's lovely working with you because you're constantly wishing to learn, particularly yourself. It's, it's, a, it's an honor to see that. Okay, uh, talking about learning from others, if you could go back to the future in, in your DeLorean and meet young Josh Hug, age 16, what advice would you give to yourself, which might be relevant for other people who've got sons and, and children listening, about what you found matters in life and what doesn't matter so much based on your own experience? Yeah, I mean, the hardest lessons for me are, for me that, I, that come to mind are actually lessons that were shared with me that I didn't really learn until I experienced them. Um, but, um, and so I'm going to like, I'm going to, I'll, I'll, I'll skip a couple of those. And I think that the thing that I give that's the most common advice that I, I have internalized and I think it's so important is focus on creating customer and business value. Um, and your career will take care of itself and, and, and find that intersection of what gives you life, what gives you excitement, what, what gives you, what, what gives you passion and create value for customers and business and, and, and then the business and you're going to career will take it care of itself. I, I, I see a lot of people, especially in the next generation of leaders um, and, and in like elite education uh, coming out of elite education that are very focused on a game, almost like looking at a career as a game and a, a, a career ladder as like, I've got to just go up that ladder and I've got to figure out how to get to the next level. And it, it's, it's not, it can work, but you're not going to be happy and you're not going to actually truly create an impact if, if, if all you're doing is trying to follow someone else's ladder. Um, and what's much better approach, in my opinion, is to find something that you love um, and focus on creating value. And you're, you're going to get massively rewarded um, and you're going to be happy, which is the, the biggest reward uh, that, that we all need to be thoughtful around making sure we're pursuing. I, I think that's great advice you know, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your, uh, in your life. And that's why I love the work I do with you and other leaders is that it's my calling, it's my vocation. And therefore, if we've got a, as we sometimes have a, an OKR session, which, you know, with the time zone, eight, eight hours difference means I finish at one in the morning. I actually don't mind. I don't want to do it every time, but I don't mind that so much because you like what you do and you know, you can make a difference and add value. I think that's, that's really important. Let's go around the Inspiring Leadership Compass. Now, this is the work that uh, my wife, Lee, and I did around what makes high-performing leaders and teams. And, and the eight components seem to be quite useful ones to have a conversation around. So from your point of view, the first one is the, the one about True North with the, the, the needle of the compass pointing towards this bit yeah. of the compass, which is your, I don't know, your top three values, Josh, that you live by, that you were brought up with, maybe on the farm um, and in uh, other software jobs you've done, that you, you still find this is very relevant to you and your culture that you've established with Matt at Remitly. Yeah. And so I think that um, the, the, the things that there's, there's three things that I would say would be the importance of tenacity and hard work. Um, and stick to itness um, to to really push through the challenges that life brings. Um, I think is really important, and we we reflect that in our values and sweating the details, bias for action, don't be afraid to fail. I think those are really important um, uh, values um, that I, that I think are, are are critical. And I I'd say that I probably 
don't struggle a lot. Like those are ones that are come pretty natural to me. Um, the the, ne- the next uh, value that I that I think of that I think is really important is being an owner of the the business. Think, thinking beyond your own world um, and thinking about what's the right outcome for the business. And then this is something that I think I've modeled very well for our organization, working for Matt and supporting Matt and not, not, not thinking about my world, but thinking about the business at all times. And I think like, I think how do we create a company where it's not about how do who's getting resources, but it's about who's got the best opportunity to create leverage from those resources. And let's get, let's, let's, let's support those, the, each other um, in that ownership of the overall outcome. I think it's, it's critical. But the, the one that I, I think that the value that I've probably learned the most about and had, and at, at times had a challenge with is um, what we started, when we started the business, one of our first values that we created was transparency. And a couple, a few years into the business, um, it probably was five years into the business before I realized I just, I didn't feel like we could live up to it. I felt like it was a value that was a word on a paper that we, I, I saw all over the place when we would have situations where you couldn't be transparent. You'd have conversations around what, everything from an HR related situation to legal related situations. Like the reality is one of the, our jobs as leaders is to know when and how to provide information to people that's actionable and, and empowering to those people um, to, to make decisions. And we can't actually be fully transparent. We're one of, part, part of maturity is actually learning to say to, and how and when to say what. Um, and so I think that this value is, was actually harmful. Um, and I and I and I saw us falling short of it repeatedly. I saw us fall, uh, and and, I, and then I saw a team always looking to that whenever there was something that was happening that they felt left out of, saying you're not living up to transparency. You're not. They were always using it as a weapon more than something of actual that to actually feedback. And so what we did is we replaced it with what I think is the better, the better like uh, outcome that you're trying to look for via, because I don't want to not be transparent. Like I mean, you, you've got to know me, like I've, I'm very open. It's, it's pretty easy to read what I'm feeling and what I'm thinking. Um, and what I, but I think the better uh, value that we've replaced it and it's been working really well is lead authentically. Yeah. Um, because ultimately that's why we are transparent is to be authentic. Uh, and it, we can't in our, our culture's, especially as our culture has continued to change and evolve, like it it rejects uh, inauthentic people. It rejects people that are using information as power. It rejects people that are withholding things from to manipulate people. Um, And what it values is people that are giving people the clarity relating to what is the situation that they're in and, and, and providing the information that they have agency to be able to act on. Yeah, it's very true. And and what are the honors of, of um, facilitating your executive meetings and your uh, other other events that you have, your offsites, is seeing you and others calling out certain values that we need to live by more than we are doing, or to celebrate values that people are showing. So I think you know, radical candor is one of the books we'll talk about later on, but it it's something that you you want to be candid, but without being hurtful to people, but actually calling out what you see. Taking it from moral quotient to PQ, purpose meaning quotient, the second of the what makes um, high performing and successful people. 
what would you say is your calling? I mean, why are you doing what you're doing, Josh? What, what gives your life meaning and purpose? I mean, I, I really, I feel like, I mean, as I said, since, from, from, since a young age, I wanted to create software, but I think more fundamentally, I wanted to solve problems for people. I wanted to create value for people. And I think that the, the, both the, the joy that we've had, but also the weight of responsibility that I feel um, with Remitly is the value that we're creating. Like I look at the millions of customers that we're able to make their lives better and easier. Um, and that's just, that's, that is, that is ultimately the motivating factor that gives me, uh, uh, gets me up in the morning and keeps me excited about what my, my role is, but it also, it's also what creates a way to responsibility mm-hmm. where I like, think about like, I, there, there's, there's, there's so much more we can do. And so I feel this, um, this purpose, uh, which is let's actually continue to solve problems for customers because they have more problems than the problems that we're currently able to solve. And we don't, and we may, and we make mistakes. We don't, we don't do it perfectly. So let's, let's actually figure out how to do that better um, so that we don't disappoint our customers and let them down in their times of need. Yeah. And, and it's, it's lovely. And I, I see that it's, it's a constant desire to, to solve problems for customers and their lives and their families. You see it in a very personal way uh, with, immigrants who are sending money home to their loved ones. And that's a really powerful message. Um, Coming short and trying to solve problems, one of the problems we always have is when you're working as hard as you are, the next element, health quotient, your mental health and your physical health. I've seen many leaders in many different organizations I've been working with over the last three years of the ongoing pandemic, really burnt out and quite exhausted because they haven't looked after their mental health and they haven't looked after their physical health. Now, you and I know, we, we had a conversation about this, you always know this is an area you can do more in, but what would you say is your intention to do more in the mental health side for yourself and what you intend to do in the physical health side for yourself to, to look after your health and well-being so you can lead well? But I think that on the, on the physical side, like, the, the thing that I've been focusing on recently is not like doing the small things, like not like getting up, even if I'm in, the, I've been coming in the office more, getting up and walking around the core of our office between meetings, um, getting up and doing 10 minutes of exercise. Like this morning I got up and I did 10 in, a 10 minute low impact right on the Peloton. Um, I, not forcing myself to, to do um, the hit one that I need, I, I want to do, and I will do, but, but working on this small to, to make sure that I'm actually getting something and then building on top of that something. Um, I think, especially during the pandemic, there were stretches, um, where I really did start to lose, uh, momentum on the physical side. You get into your house, your office is right there. You get up in the morning, you have your coffee and you go in your office, you work, and, and it, this is one of the downsides of tenacity and the, the work that work ethic is it's just, I, I, I just focus on work and it's not physical work. And then your body starts to deteriorate. Um, and then and it actually, you actually aren't as effective. And so doing the small things is really, has been really important for me um, on the middle. And I, and I'm getting, and I, and I go through ebbs and flows right now. I'm digging out of a bottom. And so I'm, I'm working on it. I did, I did do my low impact 10 minute Peloton uh, ride this morning. I'm going to do more tomorrow. Um, and I'm, I'm saying that uh, for a public accountability, um, <laughs> that the, the mental side, I, 
like I really need to, there's, there's two components of this that I, that I have tried to do, but I, I don't like, I, I, I need to step back and pray and meditate more. Um, and, and, and really center myself on what matters most. Um, and this has also been, I think something that's been a little bit of a challenge that I would all attribute with the pandemic because it's pulled us back from some of the social, uh, whether it's a church or whatever it is that I can go to, like it pulled us, it's pulled us back from those connections that you can go to, to create that point of disconnection. Um, and so I've had to find things, um, whether that's coaching or whether that's, um, uh, other, uh, like, like situations that I've created to allow myself to find that, like step back from the busyness of life. Um, but I've had to be really intentional with that. And I don't, and I, I think I'm getting better at that, but I've got some a ways to go. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, and I talk about five things that from all the wide reading I've done and my personal application of this is, as you say, habit stacking, positive habit stacking, just small things. Yep. So my routine this morning when I got up at 7.30 was not to go back to bed, but to get up. And, and as I was going to the bathroom, I was listening to the Daily Stoic. So just, just hearing that, brushing the teeth, shaving. Then I go downstairs, have a, a sort of rehydrate tablet, two or three supplements. I don't want to do too many, but it's just the basic ones I need. Um, and then a little bit of mindfulness, write my journal, five minute journal.com, and then into the garage, which is a converted gym and uh, or a gym, which is a converted garage, should I say. And um, and then I did my hit training, you know, cross trainer and then different weights and different exercises so that I found that then set me up for the day and then I walk with a dog. So actually, I'm not starting until 10. People go, what, what are you doing? You start at 10. Yeah, but but I might go through till seven uh, and probably I try and stop at six and I have a, a power nap, but I'm much more effective in the time I am working than if I didn't do any of that and stretched it out the whole of the day, I'd be utterly exhausted. So I think there is a way of doing that. And the five things are, you know, you eat real food, get rid of the, 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 the highly refined processed food, which is complete crap and, and all those carbonated drinks and sugar gets, so I get sugar out of my diet. Um, I do the intermittent fasting with that uh, 16 hours of fasting and eight hours of eating, which has made a big difference for a year and a half. Then the, the hit training on alternate days mixed in with yoga for 20 minutes, which I follow a video. Um, then the sleep. And I got to work on that because with my medical condition, I, I wake up three times a night. So that breaks my sleep. But I get the power nap in the middle of the day. Um, and then the as you say, the in your case, the prayer and the mindfulness, but, but doing the mindfulness and um, keeping a journal of what you're happy and grateful for. And then finally, the friends and the community. And, and you talk about that, you know, we missed out on the church and things like that. You need to keep the friendship and the community, my family, our four children and their partners and our grandchildren. So I think having those five things covered off in small ways, as you say, even just the 10 minutes on the peloton, it all makes a difference. Or get up and begin by doing five press ups. And then the next day, can you do six and, and so on? It's 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 like um, it, it all is cumulative. It adds up and, and it has benefit. Thanks for that, Josh. What about EQ? What, what if you building your skills and rapport, listening and things like that, as, as we all know in that awful um, caricature of people who are software engineers, high IQ, low EQ, what have you done as you're developing your eco over the years? And it's like a language. We have to keep working on it. 
Yeah, I mean, I've really been impacted um, by, and it's. I think it's re- really helped my um, leadership um, in in understanding and listening to people by by really asking people what they think before I say what I think. Um, and and the, the power of speaking second or third or what, speaking last is 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 is, is super powerful. It's it's also I like. At first, I kind of resisted it because it kind of feels like you're cheating, um, because it's because it's easier. <laughs> but like, but I, I find myself to be both more concise, have clearer points, but it, more importantly, I can build on top of what others are are, are saying, and, and I I might have a slight redirection or a slightly different way to think about or a way to look forward into the future and 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 talk about some implications for some challenges that we can have, but I can build upon the top of the ideas of the team around, which I'm surrounded, we're surrounded, surrounded by great people um, at all times that have great ideas, but you can recognize the ideas and you can build on top of those and it's motivating and they can be heard. And even if I disagree, I can, I can say why I disagree in a way that actually values their perspective and point of view and values why that I, that I understand and I'm empathetic with why they might have that perspective, but I might have an alternative perspective that I can reflect versus coming in with an alternative perspective first, uh, which has been, which is kind of how I was trained. Mm-hmm. If I look at the first 10 years of, of, of my career, it was about being sharp and being direct, having the right answer, speaking up with that. And that the challenge with that is it creates, uh, it doesn't create a, a, a zone of safety or psychological safety for your team. Uh, because then they're feeling like, how, where did he, like, they, they feel like, like, A, I don't understand why he's saying what he's saying. I don't know where it's coming from. I don't, I connect that together. Um, and so I found myself really grow a lot um, in my skills by really listening first and then being a lot more concise when I do talk. Brilliant. No, I, I've, I've seen that go on in, in what we call Josh 2.0 and Josh 1.0 as you started to apply that. It, it's, it's given you more power. So it's, it's actually the ironic thing is less is more. When you speak less and you listen more, you actually get them to start thinking and solving their own problems rather than you having to do it all. It's fine when you and Matt and your colleague began, the three of you, you had to do it all. But actually, then when you've got 1,800 people, you can't be everywhere doing everything. And in fact, you will burn yourself out. You will, you will end up with mental health problems because you're not delegating. And the fact that you are now listening much more, asking them what they think, when, even when they come to you and say, Josh, what should I do? I've seen you do it. You go, well, what do you think you should do? And they go, well, I think we should do this. Sounds good. Go and do it. You know, oh, really? You know, really? I can? Yeah, you're empowered. Um, and talking about building, and you were talking about building things and that kind of stuff. For those on YouTube, they can see a wall behind you. Those who are listening on uh, different podcast platforms, behind Josh is this incredible wooden wall with different bricks in it and planks in it that are uh, all done. And, and it has this lovely sign which says, what does it say, Josh? We're just getting started. We're just getting started, remotely. So yeah. so why the wall, Josh? And what's the symbolism of that in, in the room? So this in? is th- this wall was created by one of our engineers. A couple, I think a couple of our engineers worked together, but one of them let it, um, uh, Nick. Um, and he, uh, it actually, I'm not 100% sure how, I think it's hexadecimal, um, says we're just getting started in hexadecimal in a pattern. Oh, wow. um, and so oh, wow. I, it's, one, it's one of those uh, artifacts that was created by our team that I think reflects um, 
some some of our culture here. Um, and so I love this conference room that we're at. We're in our office here in Seattle um, because I think it, finds, it provides a really interesting background. Um, yeah. But I love the symbolism of it as well. Uh, was which was that Nick Moisef? Was it? No, uh, Nick Kodap. Nick Kodap. Wow. Well, well done him. That's amazing. Okay. Well, talking about diversity and um, different people and all the skills that they bring and, and, and drawing it out of people. CQ is the next one, cultural intelligence question. So which involves diversity, inclusivity and equality. What's been your tip and experience? Because you're dealing with these hundreds of different countries, different people, different backgrounds, helping people who are immigrants in another country to get their money home by a much more efficient method than the old traditional ones, which charge them an absolute fortune, were difficult to use. You're making it as simple for them as possible so families get money. What's your tip on cultural intelligence quotient? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've had a, I, I feel like I get a cultural lesson every time I go home and, and interact with my wife from Latin America. So that, that, that helps. I live in a very diverse environment. Um, and I am continually reminded about how different American culture is from the culture that she grew up in and, and what she likes about it and what she doesn't like about it. Um, and I, but, but I think that even, even if I step back even farther in my journey, um, the most valuable class I took in university, uh, was a one month study tour that I did in the middle East, um, in Palestine and Israel and Jordan, primarily, were, were the primary countries we went to. Um, and we just, we stayed in these small hotels for a month. And I interacted a ton with these various, um, very, very they just, the, the depth of, the depth of cultural learning that I had there just completely opened my eyes to how different people are. And, and I, I think it's created a very global view for me. Um, and I, I think it's, it's, it's probably one of the bigger challenges I have on cultural intelligence and, 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 how, and how to create a, a diverse and inclusive environment is I think it's very easy to get stuck in our own worlds and our own definitions that are very narrow and oftentimes American um, in, in their view versus thinking global and thinking about like, what is it, what is it like to be, live on the street in the Philippines, and how can I and actually putting yourself into the to that and having empathy for those people in a, such a different way than what we have here? That is so interesting, and I just had a bit of a wacky idea. You probably are doing it already, but if you think about Manila and Managua, the, in Nicaragua, and and in the Philippines, where you have people in Poland, in Ireland, uh, in London, you know, could there be some way that you uh, you touch on the value of travel like you've experienced? And one of my other guests said, the way to get over diversity, equality and inclusion problems is travel. Don't go and stay in a hotel, go and live there for a month or two months. In fact, it was Graham uh, who I had on the podcast just before you, Graham Brown, and he spent six years traveling. Now, your, your people haven't got that luxury, but could you have some scheme in Remitly where you get some people who are in America to go and live in Poland? for a month and see how people are, or go and live in the Philippines, or go and live in Nicaragua uh, and see what it is like for people. So they, they, they broaden their mind and they really get connected to your customers. I just a thought, what yeah. do you think? We actually do have a program that got, got slowed down by the pandemic, but um, where we do for customers that go to any of our destination countries, for, for employees that go to any of our destination countries, we actually will give them 
uh, stipend. Um, to, to, so they go for vacation, um, but if they're going to a destination country, we really encourage them. Um, and there's a, there's a requirement that they need to like interact and talk to some customers and, and learn learn from the culture. Um, but that's really a very lightweight requirement. But we're really encouraging our, our team to go out into our destination markets and learn and, and immerse themselves more in the cultures that they that we're yeah. serving. Yeah, I mean, I think of my travel as an army officer and when I was off duty, as it were, I traveled the world a lot and I learned so much from people like you were saying uh, when I was in Jordan uh, in, in a, down in Aqaba and then in Wadi Rum and various places like that and talking to local people and, and, and living in some interesting parts of the world in some rather grim conditions um, uh, where uh, unlike uh, usual situations you learn much more than you do when you're in the hotel where you're isolated you're in a bubble you can be in any hotel and in any world um resilience is the next one rq how have you picked yourself up when you faced adversity and what gives you the resilience to get through josh so i mean i, I think that that at, at the core i think my faith is a large part of creates a, a core component of my identity and I have to step back and remind myself, though, that of that, because um, at, at times it's easy to get wrapped into the environment that you're in and looking for uh, recognition, looking for appreciation from the external external uh, forces versus tr finding it within, I think, is the, the, the most important thing that I find that creates creates resilience for me. But I, I do think that the the, one of the, like, the secrets that I've had in order to, to establish that is finding some relationships where I can just be 100% open and vulnerable and, 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 and not hold back any fears, not hold back any uh, aspects of uh, things that I may be having challenges, whether those are personal, whether those are professional, whatever they are, um, that I, I, I have to find that outlet. Um, and I think that the, the partnership that I've created with Matt has been super helpful for me because we're very, we're like the reason that you see us being so different yet having so much trust with each other is because of how vulnerable we are with each other. Um, and that creates a sense of a, a trust and we can support each other. We, we're not judging each other. Uh, we're supporting each other uh, in our areas of strengths and weaknesses, which have lots of overlap. And I, I find also value with my wife um, that where I can get, I can get that connection. Mm, that's, that's brilliant. No, and long, long make, make that last. That's really important. Um, the last two, before we go on to talk about executive teams in a book, and then the top tip is um, brand. Um, you and I are doing 360 at the moment um, and, and gathering feedback in a report and then also the phone conversations that I'm doing. What have you learned over the years from 360? If there was the value of the process rather than a particular trait, what, what, what do you value about the process of 360? I mean, I mean it's, it's always important to um, look at your, like in the same way that you build a business, when you're building a business and you create metrics and you're trying to measure the outcomes that you're trying to drive um, from a business outcome point of view. Um, I think that looking at the impact you're having on others is also critical and then figuring out a way it's, 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 it's can be a little bit more sub, you can think about it more subjectively as a more subjective process, but the reality is it's, it's pretty clear when you start to talk to people and you start to create patterns. And so having that process of pattern matching can be incredibly valuable. I, I think in my, in my case, the thing that I, 
I, I struggle with that I've continued to try to learn what from is I think that my confidence and the, and the way that I communicate um, can, can come across as, as being more certain than I intend. Uh, and so how do I learn to use language when I'm communicating with others is something that had come, comes through, through my 360s and growth. How do I learn language that allows people to recognize that I'm, I'm, I'm open to changing my point of view. I want to change my point of view. I just don't have, I don't have the data. I, I'm in, inviting that data, inviting that information to change my point of view uh, versus coming across as being closed-minded and having already made my mind up. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. This, um, the work of Carol Dweck, if you haven't come across it, fixed um, versus growth mindset. She did some great work on this. Uh, have you come across her work? Uh, fix, fix I'm, I'm familiar with the, the concept. Yeah. yeah. I, I know, I'm not sure. I've, I haven't actually read her work, yeah. specifically, yeah. but definitely I've embraced the concepts. Yeah. But, but really good point about, about growth mindset. And I, and I think uh, words have worlds, as they say on the NLP side as well, the language that we, we use is so important. And having been in the military, I have to be very careful. I don't use martial language which is very sort of commanding and, and you know, war fighting and that kind of stuff, which some people, it doesn't land well at all. So you, you have to almost adapt it because we're all so very different and uh, how things land with people is how they need to hear it. Um, legacy, the last one of the eight that I want to talk about, what would you like your legacy to be? Because you don't, I mean, you have, you have ownership of Remitly, uh, which is because you were one of the co-founders, congratulations. But in a way, you're a steward. You're looking after it for the period of time you're there till you decide you want to retire or do something different. Um, and the same with your four children. Uh, while they are your children, you don't own them. Um, they're passing through and, and going on. As I know now, mine are in the age of 30 to, uh, to 27. But what would you like your legacy to be from a Remitly point of view? How would you like to be remembered at Remitly? And what would you like your legacy to be from your family's point of view? And I think I think there's there's some commonality commonality between the two in in, in the way I I view the world um, because I don't like look at um, remitly and what we're creating as the measurement of the financial outcome or the size of what we're creating uh, is 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 a it was a reflection of like to me the, the 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 number of customers problems that we can solve but I I'm actually less focused on that as a legacy than I am on how we did it. Like I want to be known for how we created a company, not just the fact that we created a company that was a large success. Um, I want to be known at, at a legacy that we created a, a unique culture um, that really had a, a, a power that continued to, to live, to move forward. Um, and I, who knows how things will continue to evolve. But that's what I'm passionate about is is how how we build the company more than just what we've built, mm -hmm. and I and I and I say that to connect back to my family because I think that that I I've worked really hard to build to to build this, and they see how much I've sacrificed um, in order to be able to to achieve this. But that's I, I like I think it's a good example for them to see um, that I've actually worked and and sacrificed to create something, um, but it's also not just a monetary outcome. It's not, I'm not just, I don't, I don't, I don't want to come back to my family and say, um, look at, look at the money that we've created, I've created for your future. And that's why I wasn't as, 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 as disconnected, I was disconnected. I want to come back to my family and say, 
look at the look at the pe- the customers that we've served. Look at the team that that is has, and we'll look at the team that I've helped create and pull together, and look what they've accomplished. And that's that's the legacy that I want to point them to, because the, the monetary component, I could I could be, there's there's other things I could do that would be easier to earn. Uh, more money. Um, what, what we're doing is not about that That as an outcome that matters. It's a matter of the customers we serve and the team that we're building, the culture that we're creating within that team. Yeah. And, and for children, as someone said, it's example, 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 and they're learning you. And also remember, there's always that drama where the, you know, the kids go, um, you know, um, dad, you know, can you come to this? I can't, I'm busy. I'm at work, you know, and then uh, one day I'm ready now, son. Uh, yeah. It's okay. Dad, can I borrow the car? Uh, I'm off. Bye. You know, and that that moment's gone. That uh, that you know, all my children are now. They've got their own partners. They've got their own homes. They've got their own jobs, and and we see each other when we can, which is always very special. But but always be where you're irreplaceable. Was a bit of advice from Dame Tessa Jowell, who sadly died of brain disease, uh, brain cancer, and she said it's the most important thing. You know, if you're a parent, there's some things where only you as a parent can be. And you need to be there. So, so never forget that, Josh. And I think it's a, just a good reminder to us all. Thank you for that. Okay, final couple of questions and the top tip. Executive teams, you know, from your early days as a, as a software engineer um, into real networks and then on to Shelfari uh, and then Amazon and now uh, Remitly itself, you've created and, and seen many different teams. Sometimes they're really high performing. Uh, sometimes they're quite toxic. What's your one tip, if you were to give it to others listening, on what you've seen work well about turning around a toxic team and making it high performing? Um, it might be an individual in it that you have to deal with. What, what, what have you found has worked well? Yeah, I mean, I think the most one of the most important characteristics um, for a high performing team is creating an environment where people can be vulnerable and open about the areas that not 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 have to feel like they have to pretend that they have everything figured out. Um, and, I, and, and I think that in order to do that, like leadership matters a lot in modeling that um, as an expected behavior. Um, and so I think Matt does a phenomenal job. And I, I also am, am, am do everything I can to be vulnerable um, around t- challenges, be direct around challenges where I may, may have fallen short and failed. Um, and, and, and modeling that as an example for the team. And then taking to people that may have challenges relating to being vulnerable and coaching them coaching them one-on-one, giving them direct feedback uh, relating to things that they may be doing that could be uh, creating less emotional safety. And then including myself, like I think there's things, there's times where I have reacted in meetings that I specifically in executive team meetings and leadership team meetings, either as a leader or as an, or as a participant where it, the re, the harshness of a reaction can really remove the emotional safety from the room. And it can, it can cause people to become more, uh, come more into their shell and then not feel like they can truly be, bring their entire self, uh, to the team. Um, and then that just that just snowballs. Um, and so, how how do you avoid those those negative instances? And then how do you model uh, the vulnerability in a way that actually creates a, uh, an emotional safety for people to be truly open about what they're feeling and what their challenges are? Yeah, really good points, uh, and and well done for just even calling out what you're noticing about what you do when it works well and when you need to work on that uh, is is very powerful. 
Okay, well, thank you for that. And now, um, before we do the top tip, your leadership books. I think you mentioned you have a couple that you found useful. Could you mention the the books and and what you've liked uh, about them and what you took from them? Yeah, I think that the book that I think has probably had the most impact that I has had the most impact on me that I continue to practice and learn how to get better on is Radical Candor by Tim Scott. Um, and I find that the the simplicity of the framework of of showing that you care for somebody while also being direct um, is is a is a pretty hard, high challenge for me to continue to to refine how I do. I think that I have I struggle with actually ruinous empathy more in one on one scenarios. I come across in group set, settings as being sometimes disconnected and potentially being. Um, like less empathetic to people, but especially when I move into one-on-one scenarios, like I, I, I've struggled with how do I show, how do I communicate that I care to people while also giving them direct and hard, hard feedback. And then the second book that, that I has really impacted me that I think impacts our leader, my leadership philosophy from a goal setting and, and leaderships uh, like outcomes leading to outcomes is measure what matters by John Doerr. And I love that the learnings that he goes through relating to the Intel and Google and other companies and how they, they learned that setting goals um, was, was a, a goal in and of itself. Like it, like the, the, one of the most important things from a, from a inspiring teams, high-performing teams to achieve amazing outcomes was giving them great goals, but not, but making, allowing them to stretch themselves, not, not punishing them for falling short on goals, thinking about how do you disconnect direct linkage of compensation to goals such that you can actually really push yourself and learn how to create good goals. And then if you make a bad goal, make a better goal next quarter. Um, And I think that has been really impactful for how we think about managing the business that we've created and it allows for us to really aim for the stars. Uh, As really two, two great books. Thank you very much for that. So, Josh, would you just introduce yourself again, uh, the role you have within Remitly, and share with us your two-minute top tick, top tip of practical advice for others? My name is Josh Hug, and I'm a co-founder of Remitly. Um, and my two-minute, my top tip is: culture is the people you hire. Um, when I when I first joined Amazon, one of the things I wanted to learn was how they created culture, um, and I was really impressed with how they defined it really well um, in very clear ways. Um, and but the most impressive thing that I think that created their culture was how they hired to that culture and how they managed to that culture. And I think that as I've uh, um, started remitly, we were, we, we, from the very beginning, really were intentional around defining what we believed was the most important aspects of not just who we want to be philosophically, but how we want to work together. Um, but it ultimately has to reflect who we are as people and who we've hired. And, and so in the early days when it was just Matt, myself and Shabas, um, we had to write down what reflected who we were. And as we continue, every time we hired somebody, Every time you hire somebody, your culture changes because you're bringing something unique in. And so you want to be intentional around how you are shifting your culture when you're hiring people because it's going to add to that 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 mass. And so what we really believe in is periodically stepping back and reassessing who are we now? Does Do the words in the paper reflect the reality of who the team is and how the team is behaving? Um, and, then, and then also embracing some instruction change, which we've done since the very beginning, where we say we might, we might 
be weak in a certain area, we're going to set that as a value that we value because we're going to grow in that value. A great example that I think um, that we added to our culture like two, two and a half years ago was joyful. And we, we are, we, 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 it's not that we're not happy, um, but we've tended to be pretty, it's hard to build a company and it's easy to get too serious. And it was really important. And we, and we recognize the value of, of that to say, let's actually, let's actually stretch ourselves to bring more joy to our work. And it's been really helpful and I see it paying off. That's brilliant. Well, Josh, uh, Josh Hug, the co-founder of Remitly, a very successful company. It's a real joy having you on the series. Thank you. And good luck with the business in the future. But once again, thank you for being on the Inspiring Leadership series. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.